You're listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Hi everyone, my name is Claire Raleigh. I hope you're all doing well. I am here at Geneseo. I have one more week of school left until I graduate. Um, I hope you're all doing well and staying strong. Um, Today, our scripture reading is Romans 1, verses 8 to 17, and I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I am longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much for that reading, Claire, and congrats on your upcoming graduation. That's awesome. Um, Last week we kicked off a brand new teaching series on the book of Romans. So this sermon is part two of what will be a many months long series on this incredibly challenging but spiritually rewarding book. Uh, And if you want to follow along through this series, if you'd like to uh, take these teachings a bit deeper, I'm encouraging everyone to read through the book of Romans along with us. And for this first part of our series, you can start out by reading Romans 1 to 4, the first four chapters of this book, because they form sort of a a unit. They fit together really nicely. Uh, And we're going to be in this section of Romans for a while. So read chapters one to four along with us. Read it over and over again, maybe maybe even like once or twice a week. Uh, You could read a chapter a day, whatever works for you. But when you get to the end of chapter four, go back and start over with chapter one. If you do that, and then if you come back and take in these teachings every week, you're going to start to see and to understand more and more stuff in this incredibly dense book. Last week's sermon was really more of an introduction to the book of Romans. We talked about the structure of the book, where it fits in the New Testament. We talked about um, the audience that Paul, the author of this letter, was writing to. So if you missed last week's series you, uh, sermon, you definitely want to go back and check that out. Maybe give it a listen sometime later this week to get some of that background info. But for now, let's dive into our passage for this week, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. This is right where we left off last week. Uh, Paul has just given his opening greetings to the churches in Rome. And then starting in verse 8, we actually get a bit more information about the context he's writing to. 
and we find out that Paul has never been to Rome. He talks about how he prays for the Roman Christians, how he longs to visit them, but he's been prevented from doing so. Paul's never been to Rome. He's never met these folks, and he does know a handful of people in the Roman churches. He's met a few of their leaders as he's traveled around the world, but by and large, he's writing to an audience that he's never met. And that makes the book of Romans a very unique letter. Remember, we have 13 letters from Paul in our Bibles. Most of them are written to churches he founded. He was, he was a missionary, so Paul would travel all over the Mediterranean world, preaching and starting these little house churches, and then he would write letters back to them, and that's what makes up about half of our New Testament. But here in Romans, Paul is writing presumably to a, a very large church, or a, a large collection of house churches, really, uh, living in Rome, the epicenter of civilization at the time, and he's never met them before. And we get a sense of that right away in these opening lines because he starts sucking up to them, right? <laughs> like he, he praises their faith. He says he prays for them continually. He thanks God for them. He's buttering them up. He's, he's being really, really respectful, trying to make a good first impress, impression so that hopefully these people will actually listen to what he has to say. Now, if, if you're familiar with Paul, if you've spent any time at all reading Paul's letters, you just know that the hammer is going to drop eventually, right? Like, like, usually when Paul starts building up his audience and, and heaping praise on them, that's when you know that he is about to just slam them with something. And, and the hammer does drop uh, uh, next week, actually, so, so look forward to that. Um, but that's a little peek behind the curtain of what's going on here. <clears throat> Paul butters his audience up in verses 8 to 15, and then in verse 16, he launches into the meat of the argument that's really at the heart of this book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, I just got to say, the wording here is kind of curious. You've got the whole Jew and Greek thing. We talked about that last week. The, the Roman church is a community that is deeply divided along ethnic lines. This is a very dark time in relations between Jews and Gentiles, especially in Rome at the time Paul is writing this letter. But it's that first phrase in this verse that really stands out to me as odd. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does Paul speak in a negative here? Like, why say that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Why not just say that he's proud of the gospel or that he has confidence in the gospel? Why specifically not ashamed? Or to put it another way, what might Paul and his audience have had to be ashamed about? What is it about the gospel that might have triggered shame in Paul's audience, leading him to state so firmly that he's not ashamed? Now, if we were meeting in person right now, if, if uh, it weren't for this pesky global pandemic we're going through, I would probably do a straw poll right about now, and I would ask something like, how many of us have ever been ashamed to be associated with Christianity? And I'm guessing we'd get a few hands. You know, a, a question as controversial as that one would probably get a few less hands than normal because, you know, uh, you don't want anyone to judge you, right? Um, and who, now, who knows? Maybe... Um, Maybe now that we're at home uh, with less people around to look down on us, maybe we're going to get more hands this week than we would if we were all together. But seriously, 
How many of us have ever been ashamed to be outed as Christians? If we're honest, I think everyone's hand would be up. Because all of us at some point in our lives have had some form of fear or shame or embarrassment about being called Christian. Now this can result from like a weak or an immature faith, maybe when you were like brand new to the faith or going through a a time of questioning and you weren't very confident being labeled a Christian. That certainly happens, that's normal. More often though, at least for me, I think the shame arises from being associated with certain brands of Christianity that that we find, let's say morally questionable, right? when we see self-proclaimed Christians doing just heinous stuff, often in the name of their faith, you know, uh, hating others, condemning others, clinging to worldly power and authority, and then misusing that power in ways that are self-centered and cause harm to other people, that's when it can be embarrassing to be called Christian. I know for me as a pastor, I feel this on like a particularly acute level. Uh, It was easy a few years ago when I was just a theology professor uh, because no one knows what theology is, right? So they just, they hear the word professor and they think smart, which is nice. Um, But man, once someone finds out that you're a pastor, nine times out of 10, the conversation is just over. Like if I'm at a kid's birthday party and I'm meeting other parents, as soon as I tell someone what I do for a living, they usually want nothing to do with me. And those are the less awkward instances. There's also the times when I mention that I'm a pastor to someone who has an ax to grind with the church. Usually it's someone who's been hurt by the church in some way. And so as a pastor, I just automatically represent the entire institution that failed them. And so I get it. I've been there. I know the feeling of wishing that you could just crawl back in a little hole and disappear once you've been outed as a Christian. And I think that's something Paul's audience would have been acutely aware of as well. Remember, the churches in Rome at this time basically have two large segments. You've got your Jewish Christians and your Gentile Christians. Both of those groups would have had reasons to feel ashamed about their association with the gospel. For Gentile Christians especially, I think this shame would have been rooted in the inevitable conflict they'd have felt between the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of Caesar. We've touched on this idea before. Uh, And if you follow our Facebook Live videos, I actually talked about this a couple weeks ago in a video about the gospels. But gospel is a politically loaded term. When we hear the word gospel today, our minds go straight to religion, right? Like, um, we know the gospel as a Christian thing, usually associated with the four stories about Jesus that we find in our Bibles, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in the first century, especially in Rome, gospel was a political term. Gospel was imperial language, and it comes from the, the gospel proclamations, the good news proclamations that were issued by Rome, usually about the Caesars. When Caesar was victorious in battle, when the the Romans had crushed one of their enemies, a gospel proclamation would be issued telling about the battle and about Caesar's triumph. When a new Caesar was born, when the emperor had a child, a gospel proclamation would go out across the uh, empire to announce the birth. And when the emperor died, a gospel proclamation would be released 
that would announce that the, the emperor had ascended into heaven to take their place among the gods. That was the gospel in ancient Rome. That's where the word gospel actually comes from. So when the early Christian community starts going around Rome telling the story of Jesus and calling it the gospel, they're hijacking imperial language. They're co-opting it and uh, subverting it. You've heard the good news of Caesar, right? Well, let me tell you the good news of Jesus. See, Christianity, at least in its earliest days, was as much a political movement as it was religious. The ancient world didn't have all these nice, neat little boxes we have today for our lives. You know, your, your political life here, and your religious life there, and your financial life, family life, vocational life. No. The mindset of the ancient world was much more holistic and integrated. When the early Christians said that Jesus is Lord, they were saying by implication that Caesar is not. That's why they faced persecution. That's what got Christians fed the lions and what landed Jesus on the cross. The Christians weren't persecuted for being nice people. No, come on. They had the audacity to proclaim an alternative gospel to the one of the empire. And that was one thing if you were already Jewish, right? I mean, for a Jewish Christian, you're already a uh, religious minority. You already face persecution every single day. You know what it is to be viewed with suspicion as an outsider. But man, for these Gentile converts to Christianity, this was a new phenomenon. You're not used to being treated like an outsider. And now all of your allegiances, all your old values and commitments as a citizen of the empire, all of that is now called into question by your allegiance to Jesus. Because the gospel of Caesar is fundamentally at odds with the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Caesar is peace through strength, uh, peace through domination and control. Might makes right. Love your neighbor, sure, if we're talking about your fellow citizen of Rome, but hate your enemies. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Don't bow down and worship the emperor. Worship God and then follow me. I mean, my goodness, if you're a Gentile Christian living in Rome, you're now declaring your allegiance to Jesus, some guy who Caesar crucified. Do you see where there might have been some shame or embarrassment associated with being a Christian in Rome at the time? And then if you're a Jewish Christian, uh, because remember, Christianity started out as a Jewish thing, well, then you're part of this weird little sect, right? This, this offshoot of Judaism that's viewed as heretical by most of your fellow Jews. The early Christians were blacklisted by the rest of the Jewish community. Uh, your family would disown you, typically. Your local synagogue would expel you. You definitely weren't welcome in the temple. So, like, there goes all the sacrifices and the festivals that are really the court of your faith. Because you're following a Messiah who was viewed as a heretic and a failure. The promise of the Messiah wasn't to save our souls and teach us to love our enemies. Now, that's not, that's not what most people in the first century were looking for. The goal of the Messiah, this promised anointed king of the Jews, was to liberate the people from their Roman oppressors and establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God promised to liberate God's people, to save God's people. God promised to send them a savior who would lead them to freedom. How can you say the Messiah has come if Rome is still in control? How can you say the Messiah has already come if we're not free? 
This is a question of God's faithfulness, right? Like, how can Jesus be the Messiah if he was killed by the Romans? That's not the kind of deliverance God promised. You're starting to understand how Jewish or Gentile being associated with the gospel of Jesus might have been a source of shame for these early Christians. These are questions we're still wrestling with today and just in different ways. Uh, In terms of our allegiances, what does it look like to be a good Christian and a good American? What do we do when our identity as Jesus followers comes into conflict with some other element of our lives or our livelihood? And questioning God's faithfulness, I mean, come on, who hasn't? Whether we're talking about suffering or injustice or, or just wondering deep down if this whole Jesus thing is legit, I think it's safe to say that we've all wrestled with the question of whether or not God is faithful. And you know, the rest of Paul's letter uh, could be read quite well as a response to these type of questions. Like if this is all the background info you had to go on as you read through Romans, you'd probably be able to make sense of most of this book. But we actually get a snapshot of Paul's answer to these questions right here in verses 16 and 17. This is what you might call the thesis statement of Romans. For the rest of this letter, Paul's going to be unpacking the claims he makes right here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. There is so much here to unpack, and it's, it's going to be teased out as we journey through this book together as the, uh, through the next you know, many, many weeks. For now, though, let me just tease out three main points Paul makes here, uh, three reasons that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And first, the first reason is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Faith. Or put a little bit more plainly, the gospel reveals God's power to save. God's power is not like Caesar's. The power of God is not some uh, domineering or controlling or violent thing. God's power lies in love. And that's love as demonstrated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel of Rome was peace through strength and domination. We've we've wiped out all of our enemies, leaving no one who can rival us. So join us and find peace. That's what Roman power looks like. That's the good news according to Caesar. But the power of God as demonstrated through Christ looks like loving your enemies even to the point of death. It looks like dying to save your enemies even if they're the ones who are killing you. Now that sounds absolutely insane when viewed through the lens of Roman power. And it looks pretty ridiculous when viewed through an American lens too, by the way, um, because our empire is not all that different from the empire of Rome. But that's the power of God. That's how God's power works. The God we follow looks a lot more like a Jewish rabbi who gives his life up freely on the cross than it does like a Roman emperor who promises peace through strength. This is where all those Christians we're embarrassed to be associated with get it wrong, in my opinion. Now, we love them. We pray for them. uh, We acknowledge them as brothers and sisters in Christ, of course. This this is a discipleship issue we're getting at, not a salvation issue. But we we deeply disagree with them 
when it comes to our understanding of God's power and what that power actually looks like in practice. Because worldly power ain't it. That's not what it's about. The hope of like winning some culture war or getting a few senators in our pocket who can pass our agenda into law, that's not it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not American exceptionalism. And I say that as someone who loves America, right? Like, we're a great country. I'd rather live here than just about anywhere else. But this is not the kingdom of God. We are not the shining city on a hill. That's the new Jerusalem. We are a principality that is subject to the reign of God and the lordship of Christ, just like every other principality out there. And a lot of our fellow American Christians have gotten that a little mixed up. And instead of feeling ashamed of that, ashamed of being associated with that, we should be proclaiming the gospel to them. Lovingly, of course, but in resistance. So Paul's first point is that the gospel reveals God's power to save. It shows us what the power of God actually looks like. His second point, the second reason he's not ashamed of the gospel, is that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Now, we've talked about righteousness before, and, and the, the righteousness of God is a major theme throughout the book of Romans, so we're going to be talking about this again. But the short version is, when, when you hear righteousness, when you hear that word, think made rightness, okay? Someone who is righteous has been made right with God. And so when we call God righteous, we're basically saying that our God is a God who makes things right. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead is also working to make all things new. This speaks to that question of God's faithfulness that would have been raised by Jews and Jewish Christians at the time of Paul. Is God faithful to save God's people? Yes, and then some. See, the tendency among some Jewish folks in Paul's day, and it's the same tendency among some more, you know, left-wing liberal Christians in our day, is to view salvation exclusively through the lens of political liberation. This would be like the social justice warrior Christianity, a form of the faith that is admittedly very close to my heart, but it can be just as limiting a view of the gospel as all that right-wing stuff we just got done critiquing. The gospel does include the liberation of the oppressed, absolutely. But it's not just for a select group of people, and it's not just political liberation. God is making all things new. And that includes restoring our relationship to God, to each other, to the earth, freeing us from everything that binds us, whether that be sin or death or exploitation, what have you. It touches on our spiritual health, our mental health, emotional health, relational health. All that stuff is encompassed in the good news of salvation offered through Christ. So God is faithful. 